With Far Cry 6 right around the corner, we here at Suggestive Gaming figured now would be a good time to go over the entire Far Cry franchise thus far. Now, as a bit of a warning, with Ubisoft's purchase of the franchise after the first game, the publisher released a reimagining of it, so I'll be treating that as canon in the main segment of this video, but I'll cover the original Crytek-developed title towards the end as a bonus. As always, I'll be skipping over a couple less-than-relevant DLCs and expansions to focus more on the main plot of the series' installments, but the critically acclaimed Blood Dragon standalone expansion for Far Cry 3 will be covered, also at the end of the video, just for some fun. Also, I shouldn't have to say this, but the Yuva Bowl-directed Far Cry movie? Yeah, I'm not touching that. Nope. Sorry. Wait, no, no. Actually, not sorry. Now, without further ado, this is what you need to know about Far Cry. Our story begins in the Stone Age, thousands of years before the Common Era, where we find a group of hunters belonging to the Wenja tribe. The hunters are soon attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, and the only surviving member, Takar, is sent to find the land of Oros, where he will in turn find their lost Wenja brothers. Takar crafts a bow and makes camp, finding an arrow crafted by a fellow Wenja. He then follows nearby tracks and eventually finds a woman cutting off the ears of corpses. The pair are attacked by another tiger, but are able to escape to Oros, where the woman recognizes Takar as a Wenja and introduces herself as Sela. Sela states that she needs the ears of the Udam tribe, and that their leader, Ul, destroyed the Wenja village, scattering them across Oros. Takar then heads off to find herbs to heal Sela's wounds from the tiger attack. Takar returns and heals Sela before heading out to explore Oros. Before he leaves, Sela asks Takar to find other Wenja and bring them back to her location to rebuild the village. Soon after, Takar finds a shaman named Tensei, who sends Takar on a spirit vision where he follows the image of an owl. When Takar awakens, Tensei states that the owl spirit has named him the Beastmaster, giving him the ability to tame the various spirits of the wilderness to help him in battle. After Takar tames a white wolf, Tensei joins the camp. The Udam then learn of the Wenja's regrouping, and they attack the next day, led by Ul. Takar leads the defense, and the regrouped Wenja hold off the attacking Udam. Takar kills off the attackers, but Ul is able to escape. Tensei shows Takar another vision, where he sees that the Udam worship a stone fertility statue. Afterwards, Takar enlists the help of three Wenja warriors, Woga, Karush, and Jema, as well as an inventor named Urki. Takar then captures an Udam commander named Da, who he takes prisoner, much to Sela's frustration. Takar stops Sela from killing Da, who offers his help in exchange for his life. Takar then learns from Tensei that the Azilla tribe have started capturing and torturing Wenja, and Takar heads out there to rescue them. While Takar is able to release the prisoners and set fire to the Azilla camp, he is captured while trying to escape. Their leader, Batari, is impressed with Takar's Beastmaster abilities and offers him a place in their tribe, but he refuses, prompting her to throw him into a fire to burn. Luckily, Takar is able to escape the flames and returns to the Wenja village, where he regroups with Tensei. Through another vision, Takar learns that the Azilla fear the Mask of Krati, Batari's son who she burned alive. Takar heads to Krati's tomb, taking the mask before leaving. Takar then tames a mammoth and uses it to smash through the Azilla gates, donning the mask to scare the tribe before finding Batari at her temple. He then pushes her into a giant flame, burning her alive and ending the Azilla tribe's havoc. Takar then works with Sela to find a yellow leaf they can use to create an antidote for a poison that protects the entrance to the Udam village. 
However, on his way, he is captured by Ul, who speaks to him with his daughter. Ul reveals that the Udam are sick with some kind of disease that they have been hoping to cure by eating the flesh of the Wenja. Takara is able to escape and returns the leaf to Sela. He then uses the antidote to enter the Udam cave and find Ul, finally killing the Udam leader, taking his two children back to the Wenja village. There, Takar helps the Wenja villagers with their various quests and goals, eventually killing Da to put him out of his misery before his sickness progresses. After fully rebuilding the village, Takar celebrates with the Wenja, finally able to rest with his brothers and sisters. Afterwards, however, Ul's daughter finds a bear in a cave, and she is able to tame it, revealing her own Beastmaster abilities. Thousands of years later, into the Common Era, towards the end of the year 2008, a mercenary is sent to an African country to kill an arms dealer called the Jackal. However, when he reaches a hotel in the city of Pala, the mercenary collapses from the effects of malaria and passes out. When he awakens, he finds himself inside a hotel room with the Jackal standing over him. The Jackal reads the mercenary's mission briefing, but decides to leave him to die from malaria instead of killing him himself. The mercenary survives, waking later to find the town in the center of a firefight between two of the country's military factions, the APR and the UFLL. The mercenary is nearly killed, but is saved by one of the factions. He then works with both sides of the war, until one side tasks him with killing the leader of the other. After this, the mercenary is betrayed and ambushed, but is subsequently rescued by the Jackal, who leaves shortly after. The mercenary then kills the leader who betrayed him to regain the favor of the other faction. Later on, the mercenary is tasked with delivering diamonds from one faction to the other as a peace offering. However, when he arrives at the outpost for the delivery, he finds that the jackal had killed the potential recipients, wanting the war to continue since peace would only draw worldwide attention away from the faction's leaders committing crimes against their people. He then knocks out the mercenary, who awakens to find himself imprisoned after being blamed for the mayhem at the outpost. The mercenary escapes his imprisonment and works with a journalist named Ruben Oluwagembi to track down the jackal. Coincidentally, this leads the mercenary back to the prison where riots have broken out. When he arrives, he finds the jackal leading the uprising, having changed his mind about the war and now wanting to help stop it. The mercenary then works with the jackal, killing the faction leaders to retrieve the diamonds to bribe the border guards to allow the people of the country to escape. The mercenary then returns to the Jackal with the diamonds, and the Jackal reveals that he planted dynamite on the border to prevent the military from following the refugees, and that one of them needs to detonate the dynamite, while the other needs to take the diamonds to the guards. Either way, the mercenary dies, either in the explosion or by killing himself to avoid his malaria case. Afterwards, Ruben watches the explosion and writes an article about the refugees' escape. In the aftermath, the Jackal was presumed dead, but his body was never found. Anarchy continued in the country, and the violence unfortunately raged on, although the refugees were able to escape mostly unharmed. Four years later, Jason Brody travels with his friends to the Rook Islands in the Pacific. After skydiving, they land on what they soon discover is a pirate stronghold where they are captured by pirate lord Vas Montenegro. Vas tells Jason and his brother Grant that he plans to hold them for ransom from their parents before selling them into slavery after receiving it. While Vass walks off, Jason and Grant are able to escape their cage and sneak out of the base, but are soon discovered by Vass, who shoots and kills Grant. Vass then gives Jason a 30-second head start and allows the young man to run into the jungle before opening fire. 
Jason is able to escape and falls into a river where he is rescued by a man named Dennis and tells Jason about his tribe, the Rock Yacht, who use the power of the Tatao, magical tattoos that grant their wearers power. Dennis gives Jason the Tatao, recognizing his potential after he escaped the pirate camp alive. Jason and Dennis then work together with the common goal of taking down Voss, while Jason also looks for his older brother Riley and the rest of his group of friends. Jason and Dennis soon learn that Jason's girlfriend, Lisa, is being taken to a nearby pirate outpost. They head there and Jason clears the outpost of all of the guards, but finds that Lisa had escaped during the battle. Afterwards, Dennis tells Jason that one of his friends was discovered at the house of Dr. Earnhardt, a colonist on the island, and Jason heads there. Jason finds Earnhardt's house, and the doctor introduces himself. Earnhardt, a herbalist studying the island's flora, shows Jason to his friend, Daisy, who had been poisoned by one of the island's trees. Needing to administer more antidote, Earnhardt sends Jason to a nearby cave to find medicinal mushrooms to help create it. In the cave, Jason inhales some of the other mushroom spores and winds up going on a hallucinogenic journey through his memories with his friends. When he snaps out of it, Jason finds the mushroom and takes a sample back to Earnhardt. He speaks to a now-awake Daisy, and the pair convince Earnhardt to let Jason bring their other friends back to his house for safety once Jason finds them. Jason then heads out to rescue the rest of their group. Jason then fights his way into a dilapidated ship used by the pirates to use its comms room, where he overhears that Vaz will be recording hostage videos with the captives. Jason then helps the Rakyat defend their village before heading to the pirates' cove, where he finds the hostage videos, but is unfortunately captured once again by Vaz. When Jason awakens in captivity, he finds himself alongside Lisa and their friend Oliver, being doused in gasoline by Vaz. Vaz ignites the gasoline and the floor crumbles, allowing Jason to break free. Jason is able to rescue Lisa, but Oliver is taken by the pirates. The pair are able to escape the cove, and Jason fights off reinforcements while Lisa drives to safety. Later, they find Daisy in a cave near Earnhardt's, where she has found a boat, but requires some parts to repair it so that they can use it to escape. Jason helps her find the parts, before leaving Lisa there to help Daisy while he heads back out to find the rest of their friends. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes... It doesn't quite work. And you have, you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The <laughs> way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out the Gaming Blender on all your favorite podcast platforms now. To help him on his quest, Dennis brings Jason into the Rakyat Temple, where he is introduced to their leader, a woman named Citra. She agrees to help Jason fight Vaz if he brings her an object she desires, before handing him a flask. Jason drinks from it and experiences another vision, where he follows a mysterious man in a white suit before finding some kind of ancient knife. Jason then retraces the steps from his vision in the real world, finding the man in the white suit before following him. The man then introduces himself as Agent Willis Huntley of the CIA, before telling Jason about Vaz's boss, a drug lord named Hoyt Volker. Jason then works with Willis to disrupt some of Hoyt's operations, eventually leading him to his friend Oliver, who he is able to rescue and bring back to the cave with Daisy and Lisa. 
Jason then meets a hitman named Buck, who had purchased his friend Keith as a slave from Hoyt. Buck offers Keith's freedom in exchange for the knife Jason saw in his vision. Jason then finds and hacks a treasure hunter's laptop to help find the location of the knife. After finding some kind of enchanted compass, Jason is led to a tomb where he retrieves the dagger before narrowly escaping as it collapses. Jason takes the knife back to Buck, who gives him a key to Keith's locked room in exchange. However, after Jason finds a very traumatized Keith, Buck arrives and threatens Jason with his newly acquired ancient dagger. Jason bests him in combat, however, and kills the man, taking Keith and the knife with him back to the cave. As Jason heads off to find the last remaining member of the group, his brother Riley, Keith informs him that Vaz and Hoyt had shot and killed him when he tried to escape. Now out for revenge instead, Jason heads back to the Rakyat Temple to deliver the knife to Citra. Afterwards, Citra tells Jason the history of their people and asks him to prove himself as a worthy warrior by freeing nearby captives. Jason stops a convoy transporting the captives, but when he goes to free them, he is instead met by Vaz, who knocks him out and captures him once again. When Jason awakens, Vaz likens their repetitive actions to insanity. While Vaz tries to kill him once again, Jason breaks free from a watery trap and continues to follow the truck. This leads Jason to a helicopter, which he boards, but it is soon brought down by an RPG. In the wreckage, Vaz finds Jason alive and knocked out yet again before shooting him to finish him off. A resilient Jason survives once again and crawls his way out of a pile of dead bodies before he is rescued by Dennis, and Jason realizes the bullet was stopped by his Zippo lighter. Jason then returns to Citra, who gives him another drink from her flask. In the ensuing vision, he sees a giant monstrosity that begins to fight him. After defeating the monster, Jason awakens to find a topless Citra on top of him. She initiates him into the Rakyat tribe, and he elects to lead them to kill Vaz. Jason then fights his way through Vaz's compound and eventually finds the man, who stabs him with the dagger. This puts him through another vision, but he is able to overcome it and kill Vaz with the knife, finally putting an end to the madman's reign. Jason passes out from his efforts, but awakens to find Citra, who reveals that Vaz was her brother, led astray from the tribe by Hoyt's influence. With this knowledge, Jason promises to avenge Citra's brother and the Rakyat, going after Hoyt to finally allow them to live in peace. Jason returns to his friends in the cave, who are preparing to leave on the nearly repaired boat. Jason shocks them, however, when he announces that he will not be going with them, and will instead stay on the island with his new family, the Rakyat. While this news leaves Lisa distraught, Jason leaves the cave and his old friends behind to go and help his new ones. Jason then meets Willis at his plane as he prepares to leave for Russia, and the pair take off, with Jason jumping out midair as they cross over Hoyt's Island. On the island, Jason meets a contact of Willis's named Sam, working undercover as one of Hoyt's mercenaries. Sam has Jason kill one of the mercenaries' new recruits to steal his uniform and disguise himself to fit in. Afterwards, Jason and the real recruits then watch an introductory speech by Hoyt, who shows off his own sadistic side, warning them to not cross him, as well as offering a massive reward for anybody who can bring him the head of Jason Brody. Jason learns of a group of mercenaries planning to work behind Hoyt's back to steal what was left behind in Vaz's wake, and he devises a scheme to kill them in order to earn Hoyt's favor. He does so and furthermore works with Sam to protect Hoyt's operations, greasing the wheels for a meeting between the two. 
Sam then takes Jason, still in disguise as a man named Foster, to meet one-on-one with Hoyt to turn over a list of traitors. Hoyt then tasks Foster with interrogating a prisoner he has in his compound. Jason then heads down to find the prisoner, quickly learning that it is none other than his brother, Riley, who survived the gunshot believed to have killed him. Knowing he is being observed by Hoyt, Jason is forced to beat his brother, but Sam rigs the camera to allow him to speak with his brother temporarily. Afterwards, Hoyt congratulates him and sets up a poker night with Sam and Foster. Sam comes up with a plan to blow up a fuel depot by disabling Hoyt's communications, allowing them to create a distraction so they can kill Hoyt and rescue Riley. The pair execute the plan, blowing up a communications satellite before leaving the fuel depot a fiery mess. Sam and Jason then meet Hoyt at his poker game. However, during the game, Hoyt suddenly pulls a knife and stabs Sam in the neck, killing him and revealing that the drug lord had seen through Jason's disguise the entire time. He then forces Jason to continue the game of poker, putting a finger on the line with each hand. After one finger is cut off, however, Jason's warrior side awakens once again and he fights one-on-one with Hoyt, eventually finishing him off with a knife in the side. Jason is then forced to fight his way out of Hoyt's stronghold to rescue Riley, who he then takes to a nearby helicopter. Riley flies the aircraft while Jason mans the gun to defend them, and they are able to fly to Earnhardt's house, finding it ablaze. Jason finds the doctor, who reveals that the Rakyat had stormed his house, capturing Jason's friends and taking them to the temple. The doctor then dies from his injuries, and Jason heads to the temple with Riley to learn what's going on. There, Citra professes her love for Jason, sending him through another vision where he is given the dagger and a choice to save his friends and leave the island, or join Citra, ruling it. If Jason chooses to join Citra, he kills his friends with the dagger before engaging in intercourse with Citra, initiating a ritual that impregnates her with his child, before she plants the dagger in his chest, killing him and releasing his spirit, allowing him to die as a warrior while setting up their child to lead the Rakyat. If Jason instead chooses to free his friends, Dennis attacks him, feeling betrayed. However, Citra jumps in front of Jason to protect him, and Dennis accidentally kills her with his blade. This causes him to feel immense regret, and Jason leaves him to mourn her death as he leaves with his friends on the helicopter, where they return to the boat to escape the island and the horrors they experienced therein. Four years later, in 2014, a man named Ajay Gale plans to travel from the U.S. to the country of his birth, Kirat, to fulfill his mother Ishwari's final wish, to have her ashes returned to Lakshmana. Despite warnings from U.S. officials regarding the lack of diplomatic presence in the country due to civil unrest with a faction called the Golden Path, Ajay travels to India and takes a bus to Kirat. Inside the bus, Ajay speaks with a man named Darpan, who offers to help Ajay get into the country smoothly. At the border, the guards check the bus and find something being smuggled underneath, causing them to open fire. Ajay and Darpan exit the bus and are held at gunpoint as a man arrives via helicopter. The man chastises the guards for shooting at the bus before violently stabbing one with his pen for his refusal to listen. The man then hugs Ajay, stating that he recognizes him before taking a selfie with him. Ajay and Darpan are then blindfolded and taken to the home of a man known as Deplore. There, they are sat at a dinner table and introduced to Deplore, and the man finally introduces himself as Pagan Min. Min reveals that he had a romantic history with Ajay's mother, and that he is the king of Kirat. He explains that Ajay's mother had fled the country when Ajay was a boy, and he blames this on the Golden Path, gesturing to Darpan before stabbing him with a fork. 
Min then pulls a phone from Darpon's hand, revealing that he had texted the Golden Path for help. His guards then take Darpon away, and Min steps out to take a phone call with somebody named Yuma, politely asking Ajay to wait there for him. At this point, Ajay has a decision he can make. Either wait for Pagan Min, or escape the compound. If Ajay simply waits for Min to return, the man thanks him for his patience and takes him on his helicopter. After they land, Min tells Ajay about his father, Mohan Gale, who is the leader of the Golden Path. Min reveals that he and Ishwari had a child, a girl named Lakshmana, who Mohan killed out of anger. He then shows Ajay Lakshmana's final resting place, and he places his mother's ashes alongside his late half-sisters. Ajay then returns to Min, who escorts him back to the helicopter, electing to finally shoot some guns. If Ajay instead elects to break away while Min is gone, a vastly different and far more lengthy path is taken. Ajay sneaks through the compound, spotting Deplore torturing Darpon for information on the Golden Path. As Ajay goes to leave, he is surprised to find a man with a gun, who introduces himself as Sabal, a member of the Golden Path arriving to save Ajay, knowing he is the son of their former leader Mohan Gale. They leave Darpon behind, and Ajay runs to a truck for escape. During the ensuing chase, however, the truck crashes and flips, killing the driver. Ajay takes his phone and responds to a worried Sabal, who asks him to meet at a nearby tower. Ajay meets Sabal at the tower and helps the Golden Path defend it against Min's royal army. During the battle, an avalanche rolls in, taking them all out, and Sabal uncovers Ajay from the snow, joking that he's a tough man to kill. Afterwards, Sabal takes Ajay to the Golden Path's village, Banapur. There, Ajay is introduced to another Golden Path leader, Amida, who doesn't take too kindly to Sabal involving the group with Ajay while they're already fighting a civil war. At this point, Ajay knows he is looking for something called Lakshmana, but doesn't know what the word refers to, since he wasn't able to learn its true meaning from Pagan. Sabal assumes it must be a temple in the Northern Territory, and agrees to work with Ajay to help him figure it out. Ajay later speaks with Amida, who apologizes for her cold response before. Ajay offers to help their village, and after doing so, Amida introduces him to a girl named Badra, believed to be the Taran Matara, an incarnation of the locals' main goddess. Later, Sabal introduces Ajay to Longinus, an arms dealer from the same country the Jackal operated in years prior. Soon after, Ajay learns that the royal army launched an attack on the Banapur village, and he heads there to fight them off and rescue Badra from a burning house. Ajay later speaks with Amida, who convinces him to stay and help the Golden Path unite the country to make his parents proud, promising to help him find Lakshmana afterwards. At this point, Ajay begins to work with various allies around Kirat to help further the Golden Path's goals. However, these goals begin to skew as its leaders Sabal and Amida begin to disagree on what the true purpose and goal of their fight should be. Eventually, this argument comes to a head, and based on who Ajay prefers to help, one of them becomes the true leader of the Golden Path. Along the way, Ajay learns from Badra that his father was murdered in his own home, and Ajay heads there to investigate and hopefully learn more. There, Ajay comes across two squatters, Yogi and Reggie, who end up drugging Ajay. He passes out and awakens inside an arena, being led by Nur Najjar, one of the governors working under pagan men. Ajay survives the arena and afterwards learns that Nur is secretly on his side, only working for Pagan under duress, as Deplore has her family hostage. The pair agree to work together, and Ajay heads off to help free her family. 
After attempting to do so, however, Ajay is confronted by Deplore, who reveals that Noor's family was killed years prior. Ajay knocks him out and takes him back to the Golden Path. He returns to Noor and either puts her out of her misery or tells her about her family, the grief of which causes her to take her own life. Later, Ajay meets with Agent Willis Huntley and protects him at an airfield before speaking with him about a file of intel in a nearby plane containing the CIA's information on his father's murder. The plane takes off, and Ajay is forced to chase it, launching with a wingsuit to get into the plane and snag the briefcase of intel. After landing, Ajay reads the file and finds all the important information to be redacted. He calls Willis, who promises to reveal more if Ajay helps him take down Pagan Min and his right-hand governor, Yuma. Ajay meets back with Willis, who flies him around Yuma's operations, which Ajay disrupts in turn. Willis then reveals to Ajay that he knew his father and that he had sent his mother to spy on Pagan. When she threatened not to return, Mohan tried to kill Ishwari. He then reveals that he was actually having Ajay take out CIA assets to tie up loose ends. He then betrays Ajay and pushes him out of the plane, leaving him to be captured by the royal army. Ajay is met in captivity by Pagan Min, who scolds him a bit before leaving telling Yuma to go easy on him as he wants Ajay alive. Ajay is then drugged and witnesses a vision of Yuma before waking up, finding his cell door open. He is then forced to sneak around as he witnesses several demonic figures patrolling the prison. He is able to make his way down the snowy cliffs, collapsing at the bottom and spotting the vision of a large, yeti-like creature. This yeti leads him down a quest for an ancient relic believed to grant immortality. After finding the relic, which eventually is destroyed, he has more hallucinations, one of which makes him believe he has turned into a yeti himself. Later, Ajay awakens and is met by the leader of the Golden Path, who rescued him from the tundra. The Golden Path decides to take back the King's Bridge, which will help retake the north from Min and reunite the sides of the country. Using a fuel truck, Ajay blasts open the gates at the bridge, allowing the rebels to enter. Ajay finds a house in the north where Golden Path soldiers hide underground. While there, however, Pagan Min arrives and his men kill the home's owners. Ajay fights through the men and chases Pagan, flying above him in a gyrocopter, fighting and finally managing to kill the Tyrant King. Or at least a body double of him, as he soon finds out when he gets a call from the real Pagan Min. Ajay then returns to the Golden Path, and they watch a broadcast from Pagan Min where he proclaims his survival, but unintentionally gives away Yuma's position. Ajay heads to Yuma's location to hunt her down, but she gets the drop on him and drugs him once again. He is forced to fight his way through his own mind in a hallucinogenic dreamscape before he is forced to fight the spirit of the legendary warrior Kalanag, and when he kills him, Ajay wakes up to realize it was Yuma who he truly killed. With all of the king's underlings now dead, Ajay sets his sights on Pagan Min. Ajay visits Badra, who laments that Amida and Sabal's infighting has reached a high point with Sabal wanting to restore the nearby Jalendu temple to conduct the ceremony crowning Badra as the Turan Matara, while Amida wants to destroy the temple, bringing an end to the outdated tradition. At this point, Ajay can choose one side or the other, and after the fate of the temple is set, the leader of the Golden Path will ask Ajay to kill the other, a task he can again choose to carry out or ignore. Either way, Ajay leads an attack on Pagan's palace, and once he enters, he finds the king once again preparing a meal for him. Pagan suggests to let bygones be bygones and offers Ajay a do-over. Simply sit down and enjoy a meal together, and he'll take him to scatter his mother's ashes. At this point, Ajay can end his journey prematurely by shooting Pagan, or take a seat and listen to the man. After taking a seat, 
Pagan explains that he intended to bring Ajay off the bus to his palace to offer the kingdom of Kirat to him, so he could take his rightful place. He expresses some admiration for Ajay, proving that he can do what needs to be done before leading him to Lakshmana, recounting the story of his father and half-sister's deaths. Pagan opens the door to the shrine and explains that the one time he had walked into the shrine, he was a sane man, but when he walked out, he was like this. Ajay scatters his mother's ashes and walks out of the shrine. Outside, Pagan states that he's given Ajay Kirat, but he's keeping the helicopter. Ajay then has one final choice, allow Pagan to fly off in the helicopter or shoot it down, killing him in the process. Either way, Ajay moves on with his life, either in Kirat or not, with the true knowledge of his heritage and the choices he made to unite the country forever on his conscience. Four years later, in 2018, a preacher named Joseph Seed has created a cult-like movement called The Project at Eden's Gate in Hope County, Montana. After a video leaks of Seed evidently murdering one of his congregation, a joint operation between the U.S. Marshals and the Hope County Sheriff's Department is conducted to enter their compound and arrest Seed. U.S. Marshal Cameron Burke accompanies Hope County Sheriff Earl Whitehorse, deputies Joey Hudson and Stacy Pratt, as well as a rookie junior deputy on the mission. The four make their way into Seed's church, where Marshal Burke presents the arrest warrant to the preacher. While the weapon-toting cultists try to protect their leader, Seed sends them away, leaving the church empty save for him and his heralds. He holds out his hands, and the rookie is given a choice. If the rookie decides to leave Seed and his cultists be, the sheriff and his deputies leave the church, warning the marshal that if they had arrested Seed, none of them would have left alive. Otherwise, the rookie cuffs Seed and leads him out of the church back to the police helicopter. As they near the chopper, the Innsgate cultists grow more and more hostile, climbing on the aircraft as it takes off. They sacrifice themselves by jumping into the rotors, causing it to crash back to the ground. In the wreckage, Seed grabs one of the headsets and tells the dispatcher on the other end of the line that all is well. She then responds, revealing to be a fellow cultist planted within the sheriff's department. Seed then escapes the helicopter and proclaims to his followers that a cataclysmic event called the Collapse has begun. The rookie is able to run off, and the group of law enforcement is separated and chased by the cultists. The rookie is able to run from Eden's Gate and eventually regroups with Marshal Burke, who plans to get out of the compound so they can call on help from the National Guard. The pair are discovered by the cultists, who attack them, forcing them to leave in a nearby pickup truck. They're driven off the road into a nearby body of water, and they both wash up to the shore. Burke is captured by cultists and taken away, but the rookie is rescued by a member of a group resisting Eden's Gate named Dutch, who takes the rookie back to his bunker. Dutch informs the rookie that each of his partners have been taken to a different member of Seed's family of heralds. The pair then work together to build a resistance to take out the Seed family, with the rookie going after each of Seed's heralds to liberate the region they control and rescue his partners. The rookie is first introduced to Joseph's younger brother, John Seed, who broadcasts a video showing he has Deputy Hudson captive. The rookie then liberates a city called Falls End and further helps the residents rebuild. During one of his missions helping Falls End, the rookie is drugged and captured by John Seed. Joseph arrives and calls for John to bring the rookie to him. The preacher then tells the rookie that he will be saved before John takes him away in a van. In transit, the van crashes and the rookie escapes the wreckage to find Jerome Jeffries, one of the Falls End residents who helps him out and leads a charge on the nearby checkpoint. 
Afterwards, the rookie continues to help Fall's End, as well as recruiting new residents until he is captured once again by John Seed. When the rookie awakens, he finds himself tied up alongside Hudson, with John preparing to cut them open to reveal their sins so they can atone for them. He then takes Hudson away, leaving the rookie alone to break free from his restraints. He then finds a weapon and fights his way through John's bunker, eventually finding the man with Deputy Hudson behind a locked door. He takes her away and releases the drug they've been using to incapacitate him, and the rookie is forced to escape the bunker and return to helping the residents of Fall's End. While out, the rookie is shocked to return to find Fall's End ambushed by John Seed and his men. The rookie enters the Fall's End church, where he is attacked and knocked out by one of Seed's men. He awakens to find John Seed tattooing Wrath, the sin he sees in the junior deputy, on his skin. Seed then conducts a cleansing ceremony where he rips the tattooed skin off of the Falls End residence. Jerome is able to sneak the rookie a gun, and he fires, creating a distraction and allowing the others to escape. A battle ensues, and the rookie follows John Seed to his ranch. There, he finds a plane and enters it, following Seed who is trying to escape in his own plane. The rookie shoots his plane down, then chases him again, eventually killing the man. As he dies, the rookie takes the key to the bunker from him, ignoring a warning from the dying man about Joseph. The rookie then fights his way into the bunker and makes his way to Hudson, saving her as well as the other captives inside. They then escape the bunker, leaving it to explode in their wake. The rookie then returns to Fall's End and celebrates with Hudson and the residents. Later, the rookie finds Sheriff Whitehorse holed up with a small group of rebels at the Hope County Jail. He helps them hold off an attack on the jail by Eden's Gate, and afterwards Whitehorse tells the rookie about Bliss, the drug that Eden's Gate has been using to capture him. The rookie helps Whitehorse rescue some captured rebels, fighting off Bliss-powered angels in the process. Soon after, however, the rookie is drugged with the Bliss once again by Faith, Joseph Seed's adoptive sister and manufacturer of the drug. In another drug-filled vision, the rookie sees Joseph Seed's true plan, to rebuild the world, which he sees as corrupt, and lead it into the religion's new Eden. After being saved by the prison inhabitants, the rookie learns that the cult has been pumping bliss into Hope County's water supply, so he heads to the water treatment plant and destroys the pumps, stopping the poisoning. He continues to work for the prison community, including destroying a giant statue of Father Joseph, burning a book of his teachings inside. The rookie is once again drugged with bliss, finding Marshall Burke, also under the influence, who tries to convince him to join Eden's Gate with him. Both of them are found and rescued by Whitehorse and the prison community. After destroying more of the Bliss production and transportation avenues, Faith drugs and captures him once again. In his next vision, he sees that Faith is currently controlling Burke inside the prison. Burke then kills several of the rebels, opens the gate to the prison from the inside, and finally kills himself. The rookie rushes back to the prison, where Ian's gate is in the process of storming in. After fighting them off, he learns that the sheriff has been captured. He goes off looking for Faith, but is soon found and captured by her again. He sees her with the Sheriff, now influenced by Faith and the Bliss. The rookie is finally able to fight Faith, shooting her and waves of her angels until he finally kills her. Afterwards, he finds the Sheriff locked inside a room, preparing to kill himself due to the Bliss still controlling him. The rookie then rushes off to destroy the Bliss production facility. After doing so, he's able to escape before it explodes, returning to the prison with Sheriff Whitehorse, who gives the deputy his thanks while ordering him to take down Joseph Seed for good. Later, the rookie helps liberate more hostages of Eden's Gate, eventually getting captured by Joseph's final remaining lieutenant, his older brother Jacob Seed. The rookie is tied up by Deputy Pratt, 
who had been brainwashed by Jacob to work for him. Using some kind of conditioning, Jacob temporarily turns the rookie into a homicidal maniac. After killing his fellow captives, he passes out, but is soon rescued by a resistance group called the Whitetail Militia. The rookie is taken back to their base, the Wolf's Den, where he is introduced to their leader, Eli Palmer. Like he has up to this point, the rookie works with Whitetail, rescuing their people and weakening Jacob's hold on the region. While doing so, the rookie works with a man named Herc Drubman Jr., who actually appeared in the last two games, I just never had a chance to talk about him until right now. After being captured and brainwashed by Jacob another time, the rookie is awoken in a cell by Deputy Pratt, who has seemingly snapped out of his own conditioning. Pratt releases him from his cell and leads him to the exit, warning him about the power of Jacob's talents. After helping Whitetail some more, the rookie is captured yet again by Jacob, who brainwashes him into killing Eli Palmer. His second-in-command, Tammy Barnes, forgives the rookie, knowing it wasn't his fault, but orders him to find and kill Jacob as revenge. The rookie then fights off his own mental conditioning, finding and killing Jacob. He then makes his way to the dead man's bunker, rescuing Deputy Pratt, who then proceeds to destroy the equipment used to brainwash him before the pair escape as the bunker explodes. With all of Seed's lieutenants now dead, the rookie heads to the Church of Eden's Gate to confront the preacher himself. When he arrives, however, Seed reveals that he was able to use his remaining bliss supply to control the rookie's allies to capture Sheriff Whitehorse, Deputy Hudson, and Deputy Pratt, and they hold them at gunpoint. Joseph gives the rookie one final chance to walk away with his friends and leave him be. If the rookie takes this offer, he and his fellow law enforcement officers drive off in a truck where the sheriff promises to come back with the National Guard to take on Seed. However, as he turns on the radio, Jacob's brainwashing is triggered and the rookie passes out. Conversely, if the rookie stays in fights, he is forced to take down his brainwashed friends, helping them overcome Seed's influence as he simultaneously fights the preacher. Eventually, the rookie merges victorious and neutralizes Seed before Sheriff Whitehorse finally arrests him. However, soon after, a nuclear bomb detonates in the distance. As the blast begins to reach them, they escape in a nearby truck to reach Dutch's bunker as bombs continue to fall. Unfortunately, the rookie crashes into a falling tree killing Whitehorse, Hudson, and Pratt. Joseph Seed is able to break free of his restraints and carries the unconscious rookie to the bunker. When he awakens, he finds himself chained to a bed, with Dutch dead on the floor next to him. Seed stands before him, proclaiming that the collapse he prophesied has finally come. He then states that as the only two left, they are now family, and together, they will march to Eden's Gate. Sometime in the near future, we find former United States Navy officer Jack Carver operating on a ferry in Micronesia after the Mafia put out a hit on him in Manhattan. Carver is hired by a woman named Valerie Cortez and takes her to a group of islands called Jacudin, where she heads off on her own with his jet ski. However, afterwards, Carver's boat is swarmed by a fleet of Black Hawk helicopters, which open fire, forcing him to flee. He swims to the nearby island, where he is met by an army of mercenaries which he fights through until he is contacted by a man who introduces himself as Doyle, who helps him navigate the island. Doyle reveals that Cortez is with the CIA, and she was sent to rescue Doyle. However, she is captured by Colonel Richard Crow, who is working for a mad scientist named Dr. Krieger, who plans to genetically enhance the abilities of humans using an experimental serum. While attempting to rescue Cortez, Carver is hit with a tranquilizer dart and captured by Crow. When he awakens, Carver is met with a video call from Krieger, who states that Carver's drive and abilities have made him the perfect test subject for his serum. Crow then injects him with the serum before placing him in a reinforced steel crate. 
Shortly after, the effects of the serum kick in, and Carver is able to use his new feral abilities to break out of the crate with his bare hands. After fighting through more mercenaries, Carver receives another call from Doyle, who reveals that the injection also contained an implanted device to regulate the serum and enable countermeasures. He then makes his way to Doyle's location so he can remove the implant. On his way, Carver reunites with Cortez, who had escaped captivity but lost her pocket PC, which contained encrypted data revealing Doyle's cover. Carver heads to an old Japanese bunker, where he kills the mercenary decrypting the data to throw them off his trail. Carver then follows Doyle's directions, eventually finding Krieger's main research facility, where he sees several mutated human test subjects. Carver regroups with Cortez, who introduces him to Doyle in person. Doyle removes the implant, which stops the regulation of the serum, mutating Carver further. He then escapes the facility, fighting several unleashed mutants, before meeting back up with Cortez in a security office where they receive another call from Krieger. The scientist reveals that Crow has gone rogue and taken Doyle along with the serum. He then asks Carver to stop Crow in exchange for the serum's antidote. Carver tracks down and rescues Doyle at an abandoned clinic, and the man informs him that Crow took four doses of the serum before heading off to find Krieger. Carver and Doyle find a helicopter, and Doyle flies it to Krieger's base of operations, where they are shot down. Carver reaches Krieger's emergency bunker, where he finds alpha mutants with heightened intelligence and abilities, which Crow has been able to take control of. He fights through them, eventually reaching the top of Krieger's facility, where the scientist awaits him. As he gives a speech, Crow arrives, and Carver fights his army of alpha mutants before finally killing the mutated colonel himself. Afterwards, the remaining alpha mutants see Carver as their new leader, and they maul Krieger to death, allowing Jack to escape to a nearby helicopter piloted by Cortez and Doyle. Inside, Carver asks for payment for his actions, but Doyle simply passes him a container, stating it contains something better. Jack looks inside and simply laughs when he sees its contents. Not long after, Jack is hired by a woman named Cade to help her broker an arms deal between the Micronesian government and a group of pirates. The deal goes south, however, when they are attacked by a group of rebels, who Carver is then forced to fight. He catches up to Cade, who is in a room with the dead pirate leader, the dead governor, and the leader of the rebels, Samaru, who escapes through the window. Because he's an outsider, Carver is blamed for the governor's murder and hunted down. He later meets face-to-face with Samaru, who warns him to leave them alone while they rebuild the land in their image, alluding that he has the same powers as Jack does, leading him to see a bit of a kinship between the two. Carver ignores this warning and finds Cade before the two escape in a boat to the mainland. There, he finds none other than Doyle, who reveals that he was gaining intel on the rebels for the CIA, but Carver's latest actions have destabilized the region, and now he's forced into damage control. They are then attacked, and Doyle escapes with Cade while Carver fights off the rebels. Carver then regroups with them at a nearby shrine, where he finds the two in the middle of an argument. Doyle warns them that Cade needs to leave immediately, where she insists on staying, as it is her homeland. Doyle then offers the CIA's help in clearing Carver's name for the murder in exchange for their help stopping the rebel offensive. Carver learns of a rebel-controlled refinery and heads there with Doyle to disable it. There, Cade finds Carver and warns him that the local government plans to double-cross Doyle to blow up the facility just before the bombs begin to drop. Inside the tunnels below, Jack and Cade regroup with Doyle to escape. However, Cade is captured before Jack and an injured Doyle are able to escape the collapsing tunnels by boat. The pair escape, but Doyle is captured later when Carver leaves him to find an escape vehicle. Jack follows his blood trail to find the man dead at the foot of a temple, with Cade's pendant in his mouth. Carver begins to fight his way through the temple to find Samaru. 
Eventually, the two meet, and the rebel leader gets the upper hand, throwing Carver off of a cliff. Carver is able to catch onto a tree branch to save himself before climbing back up the cliffside. After fighting through the final onslaught of rebels, Carver confronts Samaru once again. This time, the man reveals that he made a deal with Cade, who then stabs Jack with a knife laced with a poison that causes him to temporarily lose his feral powers. Samaru and Carver then engage in one final battle, with Jack eventually defeating the man in a firefight. Carver then throws Samaru down into some wreckage, finally killing him. Kate attempts to apologize to Jack, but he brushes her off, giving her his reward money to please her human-like selfishness. In 2035, 17 years after the nuclear bombs dropped, if they did, the survivors in Hope County have established a settlement called Prosperity. However, one day the community is attacked by a group called the Highwaymen, led by twin sisters Mickey and Lou. One inhabitant of Prosperity, called Carmina Rye, finds Thomas Rush, a man traveling through the United States helping communities rebuild, and asks for his help. He agrees, but as they travel to Hope County on a train, it derails. Rush and his captain of security escape the wreckage to learn it was caused by the highwaymen. Rush, the captain, and their associate, Garrett Barnes, escape to a nearby river, but are cut off by the highwaymen. Mickey and Lou arrive and attempt to recruit Rush and his men, but he refuses, and Lou beats Barnes to death with her helmet. Rush then breaks free from captivity and pushes the captain into the river, allowing him to escape. Shortly after, the captain is found by Carmina, who takes him to Prosperity to meet her mother, Kim, who advises them to bring the inhabitants of all of Hope County together to form a united front against the highwaymen. The captain heads out and helps the various stragglers in the county to gain their allegiance, supplies, and help. Eventually, he finds the mine where the highwaymen are holding Rush and helps him escape back to Prosperity. Rush states that he saw another group that have some kind of supernatural ability which gives them enhanced strength, and proposes that this group might help them take down the twins. Not long afterwards, Prosperity is attacked by the Highwaymen once again. The twins express their anger at the captain for resisting them and affecting their control over the area before launching a full-scale attack on the settlement. While they are able to fend off the attack, they suffer massive casualties. In the wake of the battle, Rush suggests that they recruit the group he saw with supernatural abilities, which turns out to be New Eden. Kim initially shoots down the idea, refusing to work with Joseph Seed after his actions years ago, but Carmina concedes that it's the only option they have. The captain heads to New Eden, where he witnesses a vision from Joseph Seed detailing their history before he is led to a Bible, which he takes and gives to the Judge, the former deputy who initially fought Joseph Seed but later became his right-hand man. The Judge leads the captain to Joseph's son, Ethan, who reveals that before Joseph Seed disappeared from their land, he stated that whoever returned the book would be ordained by God to be their new leader, which throws Ethan into a jealous rage. Ethan then makes a deal with the captain that if he kills Joseph Seed, New Eden will help Prosperity in their fight. First, however, the captain must prove himself by lighting the Flame of Eden. The captain learns that this flame is the ignited fumes of the remaining bliss supply, and he relights it. With New Eden's favor, Ethan sends the captain to the north where he travels through a fog of bliss fumes to eventually find Joseph, living in isolation. Joseph realizes the captain is the chosen one he saw in a dream, and leads him to the source of New Eden's power, a tree which bears a fruit they call the Apple of Eden. The captain eats one of the apples and sees a hallucination of the beast within, which he fights to cleanse his soul. Afterwards, Joseph returns to New Eden and announces that the captain will lead them as their new shepherd, and they will help him defend prosperity. Ethan tries to usurp his father, but the people of New Eden refuse to follow him. 
Now with God's gift, the captain develops the powers afforded to the New Edeners. The captain returns to prosperity while New Eden attacks the Highwaymen to provide a distraction. His plan falls through, however, when Rush is captured by the Highwaymen once again. As the captain goes in to rescue him, however, the twins force him to handcuff himself. They then execute Rush right in front of him, before chastising him while Lou beats him with her helmet. Using his newly gained powers, however, the captain is able to break free of his restraints and fight back, but he is eventually shot out of a nearby window by the blast of Mickey's shotgun. Believing the captain to be dead, the twins decide to head to New Eden themselves to discover where his powers came from. He later awakens and recovers Rush's body, taking it back to Prosperity where he is given a proper burial. Afterwards, Kim determines that the best way to get to the twins would be to work with a highwayman named Irwin, who also wants the twins dead to settle a debt with them. Irwin helps the captain disguise himself to enter a deadly demolition derby, which he wins, earning him an audience with the twins. At their meeting, Ethan arrives and offers the Apple of Eden in exchange for New Eden's destruction. The twins then leave with Ethan, while the captain kills their highest-ranking lieutenants left behind in the VIP area. The captain rushes to New Eden to find it aflame, and there he is met by the twins, who engage him in battle. The captain defeats both of them, and afterwards, Lou dies from her wounds. The captain can then either leave a wounded Mickey behind, or kill her in revenge. But either way, he makes his way to the sacred tree, where he finds Ethan and Joseph arguing. Ethan defiantly takes a bite of one of the apples, which throws him into his own frenzy. Now appearing as a ghastly, beast-like figure, the captain is forced to fight Ethan to the death. After defeating the monstrous creature, he returns to his human-like form before asking his father for forgiveness. Ethan then dies, and Joseph carries his body to the tree. There, a defeated Joseph lights it aflame and realizes he has only ever spread pain and suffering, to which there is no redemption from. He then asks the captain to kill him for his crimes, which the captain can either comply with or leave the broken man to suffer alone. Afterwards, Carmina visits Rush's grave with the captain, and the pair reflect on their accomplishment and prosperity over a pair of beers. And with that, we come to the end of what is generally considered the modern and canon era of Far Cry. But as promised in the intro, we've got a couple more games to cover. So let's hit those quick, starting with the game that started it all, 2004's Far Cry. Do note that since we've already gone over a remake of this game, this part might sound a bit familiar. But given that there are some differences, let's do it anyway. Here we go. Our story begins with a ferryman named Jack Carver, who is hired by a woman named Valerie Constantine to transport her to a group of islands in Micronesia. However, when they get there, Val speeds off on his jet ski, leaving him behind where his boat is destroyed by a rocket, forcing him to swim to shore. Jack stumbles upon a radio, where he receives a transmission from a man named Doyle, who helps him navigate his surroundings. Carver fights through various mercenaries in the area, who are operating under the command of a man named Crow. Under Doyle's instruction, Carver goes looking for Val, who has been captured by Crow's men but he instead finds news footage of a doctor named Krieger, who announces his intention on continuing his research on the islands. While attempting to take out the mercenaries' communications, Carver overhears Krieger speaking about a mutagen his company is testing, which is giving human test subjects superhuman strength. The doctor hopes that by infusing his own DNA into it, he can gain some kind of control over the subjects and create a superpowered army. Jack destroys their communications tower and makes his way to a pier, where he is picked up in a boat by Doyle who takes him to another location to continue the search for Val. There, Carver finds a research station, where he is attacked and forced to fight a mutated creature he later learns is called a trigen, biogenetically engineered primates that were the early result of Krieger's research. He fights through more trigens, eventually reaching a helipad, where he finds Val, 
being loaded onto a helicopter by a pair of mercenaries. Jack grabs onto the chopper as it takes off, and the pair are able to fight off Bell's captors before diving into the waters below, subsequently swimming to shore. There, Val reveals to Jack that she works for the CIA, and Doyle is her undercover contact. Doyle then calls and instructs them to free a nearby group of Trigens from captivity in order to create a distraction for them to escape. Jack and Val split up, and Jack frees the captive Trigens. However, much to his surprise, included in the group are the heavily armed human test subjects Krieger started to work on, which unleashes a more powerful enemy for Jack and Val to face. Jack heads to Krieger's archives to regroup with Val, and after he rescues her from the Trigens, they head to Krieger's main lab. However, they are located by Crow, and Jack is forced to shoot his helicopter from the sky. After collecting a PDA with important data, Jack is located by Crow, who jumped from his falling helicopter, and a battle ensues in which Jack finally kills the mercenary's leader. Val arrives, and they are able to retrieve the location of Krieger's lab from Crow's corpse. On their way to it, Val finally fills Carver in on the situation. Krieger was the Defense Department's top researcher, but he was fired when the Army caught him operating in unapproved human testing. Afterwards, Krieger entered the private sector, and Doyle was sent undercover to keep an eye on his operations. Val's main goal is to stop the Trigens from getting off the island, and to do so, she plans on detonating a small nuclear bomb that Krieger has on the island. Jack and Val successfully steal the nuke, but Doyle recommends that they take an antigen before detonating it to prevent themselves from being infected by Krieger's mutagen in the wake of the explosion. The pair find the antigen serum and inject themselves, then arm the bomb, narrowly escaping the blast, which knocks them both unconscious. When Jack awakens, he finds himself aboard a helicopter, captured by Krieger alongside Val. Below, the Trigens ravage the island, and Krieger basks in the glory of his future. Jack is then kicked out of the helicopter, and he falls to the ground, where he is forced to fight through the powerful Trigen. Jack reaches a weapons cache, but immediately notices his arm is now green. Doyle theorizes that a containment leak must have saturated the air with the mutagen to a level that was too strong for the antidote, and Jack must find Krieger to get a stronger cure. Jack heads to Krieger's offices on the edge of a nearby volcano, and inside he finds Val starting to show the signs of mutation alongside a very mutated Krieger. Krieger and his army then open fire on Carver, who is able to defeat them all in battle. Afterwards, Krieger reveals that he doesn't have a cure and dies shortly after. Doyle then calls and reveals that he has been double-crossing them the entire time, planning to obtain the data on the mutagen to sell on the black market. He also reveals that the antigen they administered to themselves previously was actually the prototype mutagen all along. Jack takes Val to a boat before returning to the volcano, where he fights through hordes of trigens before reaching Doyle. He shoots the man down, who pleads for his life, stating, They're always watching. You can't change the future. Jack then executes the man, just as the volcano erupts, destroying the lab in a massive explosion. Jack escapes the blast and reaches the escape boat. There, he reveals he was able to get a sample of the cure and injects Val, ridding her of the mutagen. As Val awakens, she looks to her side and sees the data from Krieger's experiments, labeled Project Far Cry. Well, this brings us to the end of the original Far Cry. There's one last entry I'd like to cover the 2013 standalone expansion to Far Cry 3, Blood Dragon. This game was designed as an homage to 80s action films and is even referenced in future games as a film being produced, so take this game's plot with a huge grain of salt. In the year 2007, after nuclear war has ravished the planet, a new breed of cybernetic super soldiers have been created. Two such soldiers, known as Rex and Spider, are sent to an enemy bunker to infiltrate and obtain enemy intel. 
The pair successfully enter the bunker, where they are able to prevent a countermeasure missile launch before being knocked out. Afterwards, the pair are awoken by Dr. Elizabeth Darling, who is working with Colonel Sloan, who had previously gone rogue. Sloan kills Spider before knocking out Rex, who is later awoken again by Dr. Darling. Darling reveals that she secretly hates Sloan, and elects to help Rex stop him from enacting his master plan, using rockets containing the blood of blood dragons, powerful prehistoric beasts that roam the land, to genetically modify the inhabitants of Earth. Rex takes out Sloan's research facilities and rescues some hostage researchers before confronting Sloan's assistant, Dr. Carlisle. Carlisle reveals that he has successfully tested the dragon's blood on humans, creating mutated creatures he calls the Running Dead, which he unleashes on Rex before being killed by his own AI. Rex then enters a portal to another dimension where he fights through waves of Running Dead to prove his might. Doing so grants him the Kill Star, a powerful weapon which will allow him to kill Sloan. After preparing for his final battle, Rex and Darling sleep together, and he wakes up the next morning to find her captured. Rex then dons Spider's bandana and heads to Sloane's base. Inside, Rex finds the Battle Armored Dragon Assault Strike System, which he's able to ride through the gates of Sloane's facility to charge an all-out attack. Rex finds Sloane, but is unable to kill him. As it turns out, Sloane had originally programmed the Cyber Soldiers, and a failsafe prevents them from killing him. However, Rex remembers Darling and Spider and realizes his own humanity, allowing him to supersede his programming and kill Sloane once and for all. He then reunites with Darling, and the pair destroy his base and all of his research. In the explosion, however, Dr. Darling turns away from Rex, and her eyes mysteriously glow purple as she gazes off. And with that, we come to the end of Suggestive Gaming's coverage of the Far Cry timeline, and thankfully, we won't have to wait long until we see what the story has for us next. Hey everybody, thank you so much for watching. If you like this video, please leave a like, comment on what you'd like to see next, and of course, subscribe for more great gaming story content. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter, at Suggestive Games, as well as Suggestive Gaming on Facebook for updates on what I'm working on. Huge thanks goes out to the Patreon supporters and channel members who make these videos possible, and their names are on screen now. See you guys next time.